0: that's to a close tonight but with a bit of an easter focus because it is indeed resurrection sunday and uh, so engage has been about understanding the heart of god and his desire to reach into the world and to call people out of darkness and into light to find sons and daughters who have not yet found jesus and to bring them back into his kingdom and into his family that's the heart of god that's what jesus commissioned us to do as we go to make of all nations, to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything that Jesus has commanded us to do. That's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That's what Jesus came doing, and that's what he's called us to participate in. So our series, Engage, has been about how we can begin to be doing that, to be seeing the heart of God in that, to be calling that out to one another, encouraging one another as we do that. And so, I need a new mic. Okay, we're trying again. Thanks, Just. There we go. Okay, 100%. So that's what Engage has been about this evening. We're going to look at a passage from Acts chapter 8. This is the passage of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Some of you may have... Read about the story before. You may have heard about it before. We're going to tell the story a little bit, but we're also going to dig a little bit into the story because in the story, Philip encounters a guy who's reading from the Old Testament. And so we're going to just dig into what he's reading. We're going to understand a bit about it. We're going to see the gospel that Isaiah prophesied would come in Jesus 700 years before it happened. So we're going to go there. Then we're going to learn a few things from Philip as well as we go along. So let's just start. I want to set the scene for you in case you haven't read the book of Acts before and the guy Philip is a bit foreign to you. We're first meet Philip in Acts chapter 6. He's a guy that's described by two things. He's described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And if I could pick two descriptors, those would not be bad ones. I would be very happy if at the end of my life, people were able to say, this is Brad. He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. But there's Philip. He's a good guy. He's elected as a deacon in the church because there was a problem the church was encountering and there were some widows that weren't getting food. And so the Apostles decide we need some guys to sort this out. Philip is picked as one of those guys to help deal with the practical issue that was happening in the church. And he continues in that capacity for some time. And while he's busy doing his thing, one of his brothers in the Lord, Stephen, Stephen begins to share with the Jewish people who the Messiah is. And he begins to tell them the story of faith uh, from Abraham, and he carries on through. And then he begins to say, you know what, and actually that Messiah is Jesus who you have crucified. And the moment he does that, the Jews all get very upset with him, and they decide that it's time for you to go, and so they take him off to stone him. And that marks the beginning of persecution that starts out, that begins against the church. Up until this point, Christianity has been this, like, very new thing that a couple of people kind of followed this Jesus character, and there was Pentecost, and um, about 2,000 people came to, to know, to, to follow Jesus but it's still quite a new thing. It's thought of as a bit of a sect of Judaism. And after Stephen gets stoned, suddenly becomes a thing that's no longer just tolerated and kind of going on the side, but gets actively persecuted by the Jewish authorities and later the Roman authorities. And so because of this persecution that begins to break out, the believers all leave Jerusalem. It's not dangerous for them to be there, so just the apostles stay. And Philip is one of those guys who flees from Jerusalem, ends up in Samaria. And so when he's in Samaria, he's, He's there, but he's encountered something. Jesus has touched his heart and moved him in a particular way. He's recognized that this man really was the son of God. He is is real and he is living and God is alive today and it has moved me and changed me. And so he can't help when he goes into Samaria but begin to tell people about the Jesus that he's come to know and experience. And as he does that, God vindicates his ministry. He prays for people who are sick and they get healed. And he encounters people who are oppressed by demons and he releases them from demonic oppression. And God begins to vindicate his ministry as he begins to share with people about Jesus. And a move begins to take place in Samaria. And people begin to follow this guy, Jesus. And they turn from their sins and they choose to follow Jesus. And stuff begins to happen. So much so that the apostles in Jerusalem begin to hear about it. Now, you need to understand there was no Instagram back then. There was no trending hashtag, hashtag Jesus in Samaria. That wasn't happening. There were some traders who were going backwards and forwards. There were some guys on donkeys who were making the trip. And eventually, word gets back to the apostles in Jerusalem that something is happening in Samaria. And so they decide, look, we better go and check it out. We've got to make sure that it's legit. We don't want some guy preaching some dodgy gospel. So they send off to the apostles to Samaria. And they get there, and they recognize, man, God is really at work here. Something is happening. People are coming to faith in Jesus. And so they begin to pray for the people who are giving their lives to Jesus. And we're told the Holy Spirit now begins to fall on the people who have given their lives to Jesus. And then there's this incident with a guy called Simon. He's a powerful sorcerer in the time he operates in the occult. He sees what's happening. And so powerfully at work is the Spirit in the lives of the people who have just become believers that he says to the apostles, Listen, I want to buy this thing that is happening and going on here. And so they deal with Simon. They kind of rebuke him. And and sought out some of his challenges. But after they prayed and released the Spirit in Samaria, they head off back to Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to pick up our story this morning. So Philip is in Samaria. He's done some ministry. The apostles have arrived. They've kind of confirmed what he's doing, and the Holy Spirit has come. And God is beginning to be at work in Samaria. So we're going to pick up the story from verse 26 in Acts chapter 8. You can read along with me on the screen, Josh, if you put that up. All right, so here we go. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandeg, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? He asked. How can I? He responded, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? That's the passage. The eunuch said to to Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And so Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. That's our story for this evening. That's the passage we're going to f- fundamentally and primarily examine. And there's a lot that we could say about this passage, and I've, I've had to cut quite a bit out so that we don't go on for too long. Right, we're not going to talk about Philip getting teleported, for instance. We'll leave that to another time, all right, where we can trust the Lord in faith for that. Right, but I, wanna, I want to begin by exploring the question that the Ethiopian asks Philip. Right, you remember in, uh, in verse 34, the Ethiopian says to Philip, he says this, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he speaking about himself or is he speaking about someone else? It's an interesting question. And as I was doing some research for this message, I, I came across a site called Jews for Jesus. And uh, there are obviously a bunch of Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ and are writing some articles about it. They said a couple of interesting things. They said, you know, they did a survey, this particular group of of Jews that run the site. They did a survey in Jerusalem. They asked 100 Jews what they thought about the passage Isaiah 53. And of the 100 Jews that they asked, only, uh, only 10 or 12 of them were able to actually say they knew what was happening in Isaiah 53. And most of them had never read it or never really heard about it. Then they also made another interesting note. In, in, the, in the Jewish synagogue, once a week there is a synagogue reading that is scheduled to take place. It happens in all synagogues across the world, and they follow this reading plan. You know Isaiah 53 is not on that reading plan? It's one of the few scriptures that are left out, potentially because of what it might mean for them. But he, the eunuch asked Philip this question. This is a very significant question. Who is this prophet speaking about? Is he speaking about himself or is it someone else? Because it's quite a strange and confusing passage of scripture, which we're going to look at together in a moment. I want you to notice this passage was written about 700 years ago, 700 years before Philip and the eunuch encounter one another, so about 2,700 years ago now, right? It's a prophetic passage written in a prophetic book, written to God's people to give them hope in a Messiah. So I want us to, we're going to read the passage together, it's a reasonably long passage, So we're just going to read it through together. We're going to make some observations after we've read it. And we're just going to look at a few things and see if we can answer the question that the Ethiopian asked Philip. So we're going to read from Isaiah 52, verse 13. And we're going to go all the way through to Isaiah 53, verse 12. And we're going to read it through together. So let's have a look and see what he was reading. Here's the passage. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many would be amazed when they saw him, for his face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. He will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they have not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Here's the passage the eunuch was reading. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants, and he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all of their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier. Because he exposed himself to death, he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. That's the passage the Ethiopian was reading. It's a passage that speaks about the servants of the Lord, someone who will come in God's name and who will be a messianic figure for the people of Israel, who will be a figure of salvation, who will provide the means of rectification between them and God. I want you to notice some of the differences, or not the differences, some of the similarities, what Isaiah predicted the servant would do and how Jesus lived. Let's have a look at just a couple of things. There are more we could pick out. We had more time. Isaiah said that the servant would be disfigured by suffering. You put that up. Thanks, Josh. Verse 14 of chapter 52. If you know Jesus' story, you'll know that Jesus was flogged. He was beaten. He was spat on. He was mocked. There was a crown of thorns that was pressed into his head. If any of you have ever seen The Passion of the Christ, you have a vague idea of what Jesus looked like after he'd undergone that kind of treatment. That he would not really look like a normal person anymore. That's what Isaiah said. His appearance would be so marred beyond any human semblance happened to Jesus. Isaiah predicted that his servant would come from humble beginnings. You remember in the beginning of Isaiah 53, he speaks about how this shoot would grow up in a dry land, not, not in a lush garden. It would grow up in a place where it was unexpected to come from. Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth. It was a town of such low reputation that you'll see in the book of Luke, as the Pharisees are having a conversation about it, they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, that's like, I don't want to say that about East London, that'd be harsh. (laughs) Just kidding. I love East London, we've got some great friends from East London. But that's kind of the idea, there's that one place in the country where you're like, does anything good ever come out of there? That's where Jesus came from. Isaiah said his servant would be despised and rejected by many. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How's this? You remember in Jesus' ministry, there were crowds all over the place. And they would follow him around, and he would do miracles, and then they would ask for more miracles, and they would continue to follow him. He would try to get away from them and sail across a lake, and he'd get to the other side, and the crowds would be there. And then one day he stands before Pilate. And Pilate comes out to the people, and he says, guys, I've examined this man, and I've I've checked everything that he has to say, and I don't find anything wrong in him, so I'm just going to have him flogged, and I want to release him to you. You would think the crowd that had been following Jesus for so many years would be super excited to receive him back. Instead, they turn around, and they say, no, we want him crucified. He was absolutely betrayed and despised and rejected by the people that he had brought ministry to. Isaiah said that his servant would bear the sins of others and suffer in their place. You know, this is a very unique requirement. Not many people fulfill this role. This is actually something that would happen in the Old Testament to animals. There would be a lamb and a goat, and on the day of atonement, the priests would come and they would sacrifice the one, and they would take the blood of the one and paint it on the other, and they would speak the sins of the nation of Israel over a goat, and they would send the goat out into the wilderness. Ever heard the expression, the scapegoats? That's where it comes from. They would send this goat out into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people. Peter tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body when he died on the cross. It's a unique requirement. Isaiah said that his servant would heal many people. If you've ever read any of the Gospels, you'll recognize a constant feature of the Gospels is that Jesus healed a lot of people. And you just get these phrases, and Jesus went to this town and healed many people. And Jesus went to that town and healed a multitude of people. In fact, Matthew in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, Jesus does this very thing, and then Matthew says, this is in order to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah where it says that he would heal men." Isaiah said his servant would remain silent during his suffering. I don't know if any of you read any of the gospel narratives of Jesus' trial And crucifixion as we went into the Easter weekends. But as I was reading it, you'll notice that Jesus never once defended himself when he was examined by Annas, when he was examined by Caiaphas, when he was examined by Herod or Pontius Pilate or the Sanhedrin. Not once did Jesus raise his hand and say, listen guys, you're crucifying the wrong man. You're persecuting the wrong man. They would say, you claim to be the son of God. And he would say, that's what you've said. He remained silent during his suffering. In fact, Pilate pleaded with Jesus, and he just said to Jesus, tell me, is this the truth? Tell me, what is truth? And Jesus remained silent. Isaiah said that his servant would would die for the sins of others. Again, this is not really something that happens in normal legal culture. We don't like to hold other people responsible for someone else's sin. Peter again writes for us in 1 Peter 3, 18, he says, for Christ died for, for all sins, for our sins once and for all, something Jesus uniquely fulfills. Isaiah said that, G, that the, his servants' descendants would have no descendants, that there wouldn't be any descendants. You're going to notice just now that actually he also said the reverse as well. And if you're familiar again with the gospel accounts of Jesus, you'll remember that Jesus died unmarried and without any children. Right, which is why singleness is still a wonderful thing in the kingdom of God. Isaiah also predicted that his servant would be um, tried like a criminal and buried with the rich. I'll find that property for you. I don't want to lie here. Right. That they made his grave with the wicked, but, with the, but will be with the rich man in death. Now, I don't know how much white-collar crime existed in early Jewish culture. You know, but it's quite an unusual thing to suffer a criminal's death and then to be buried in a rich man's tomb. That doesn't really happen. And yet it happened to Jesus because instead of being buried in an average grave, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and pleaded with Pilate for Jesus to be buried in his family too. He was a rich man. You can see it there in Matthew 27. Isaiah predicted that his servant would give his life as a sin offering for others. And this is basically half of what the book of Hebrews has to say. If you want to take some time in the book of Hebrews, the author says it over and over again, but it kind of climaxes in chapter 7 where he says, Jesus was our high priest who gave his life as a sacrifice once for all time, as a sin offering to God on our behalf. Isaiah predicted that not only would his servant have no descendants, but that he would also have many descendants. He shall see his offspring and prolong his days. How is he going to have offspring if they've been cut off? And yet the interesting thing about Jesus is that while he has no natural descendants, we are all adopted into his family. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, all of us who are saved, all of us who are Christians are now sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters with Christ. And he lives to see his descendants. Again, Isaiah says that his servant would live again after dying. This, this is... This is very much an unnatural requirement. You can't be a normal person and fulfill this requirement. I don't know how many of you died and came back from the dead. It's not a real thing. went to heaven and came back. That also doesn't happen. Yet Jesus rose again, and that's why we're here tonight. That's what we remember on Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus rose from the grave, that the grave could not keep him, that three days later he rose from the dead. And Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians 15 that if, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the whole gospel and everything we believe is wasted and meaningless. But Jesus did rise from the dead, and he was seen by many people for a long period of time. Isaiah said his servant would be exalted and would be honored among men. And the Father exalts Jesus to the place of highest honor. You remember Philippians chapter 2, you read that beautiful poem that was written and recorded for us by Paul. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, no one will be excluded from honoring and exalting Jesus. 2,700 years ago, that's what Isaiah said about the Messiah. I don't think there has been anyone else in all of history who could so completely fulfill that description that Isaiah made. And so throughout this passage, Philip shows the Ethiopian the gospel. He shows him how Jesus was the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. That Jesus was the one who came and offered himself up as a sin offering for the world how sin estranges and separates us from God and how we require forgiveness of our sin in order to come back to God and to know a relationship with God that is real. He shows him how Jesus died on our behalf and in our place where we should have died because of God's righteous judgment on us, because our sin caused us to be guilty in God's sight. And so the punishment that we were due, due, landed on Jesus because of our sinfulness. But he also shows us that Jesus conquered death, that he didn't remain in the grave, that his death on the cross wasn't the final word, but that three days later, Jesus rose again and he defeated death as the final frontier and he took out the sting of death and he opened up the way to eternal life so that he was able to say, I have gone to prepare a place for you so that where I am going, you will be also and you will be with me. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the gospel that Philip spoke to the eunuch as he met him on that day at that dusty crossroad on the desert road to Jerusalem. It's the same gospel that we celebrate today. And I want to show you something that you may not have noticed in this story with the Ethiopian eunuch. And I think it's something that's helpful for us to just notice. Go to the next slide there for us, Luke. Ah, Josh, sorry, wrong brother. Right, you'll notice this phrase in verse 27. It says, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this might not be an a, a obviously interesting phrase. Right? It's quite an unusual phrase. But let's just pause for a moment and think about it. I want you to notice this man, is the, he's like the treasurer of the Ethiopian Queen's empire. He's like the minister of finance of Ethiopia. If he was South African, he would be traveling in a black limousine, in a 10-car motorcade, traveling down the M3 with blue flashy lights and causing all kinds of traffic jams. This guy was a big deal. And he had traveled all the way from Jerusalem, all the way to Jerusalem to worship and to honor God. I wonder if you know how serious a journey that is. I'm gonna show you a map in a moment just before, just so you aren't confused. Um, Current Sudan, is old-school Ethiopia, right? So we're going to see a journey that he goes on. He goes from Sudan to Jerusalem. That is a combined journey of 6,000 kilometers that he undertakes by chariot in order to worship a God that's not his. Google tells me that that's going to take you 62 hours to drive by car. If any of you ever traveled 62 hours to get to church? I did a little bit of maths. I right? did some calculations. The average speed of a horse-drawn chariot. It's going to take him one way, one and a half to two months, to get from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, to get to a temple where he could only go into the outer court because he's a Gentile, he's a proselyte, a convert to the Jewish faith. And if you remember from the gospel accounts, Jesus goes into the temple to clear out what? To clear out the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, because it's in that court that the moneylenders and the charlatans had set up shop and wanted to exchange the truth about God, and they wanted to take this place that was designed to be a house of prayer and turn it into a den of thieves. They had done it in the outer court, the only place that this man could go to worship God. just so that he could find his, and to do his best to honor and worship Yahweh. This was a man who was genuinely looking to meet with God. I don't know if that's like some of you today. I don't know if I've met someone like that. I'll tell you about a guy I did meet once. Um, when When I was a bit younger, we used to do this thing. I don't know if some of you have heard about it. It might sound a little Bethel, right? But we used to do a thing called spiritual treasure hunting. Anyone ever heard of that? So basically what you do is you get together with a couple of friends, you all love Jesus, and you get together and you pray and you say, God, I want you to help us, I want you to give us three things, we're going to ask three questions, where do we need to go, who do we need to speak to, and what do they look like? And so you take some time and you pray together and you try and discern what God is saying. And so we were praying and we felt like we needed to go to Cavendish Square, so I was like, great, that's the kind of place I'm likely to bump into people I know, this is going to be a little bit awkward, thanks God you know, God is a funny God, so instead of just leaving it there, not only does he do that, but he then the picture I get is of a Muslim guy wearing a fez. I'm like, really? Really, Lord? Like, couldn't you give me, some, I don't know if I'm equipped to engage in, like, cross-religious evangelism. I don't know if I've got the skill set or have the knowledge to do any of that kind of stuff. Anyway, off we go. And, you know, you kind of go kind of reluctantly because you You want to be obedient, and so you go, but you're kind of there, and you're hoping that you don't actually meet the person, because then you can say, well, look, I was obedient, but, you know, it just didn't happen, and better luck next time, God. Anyway, we're we're there in Cavendish, and I'm on an escalator going up towards McDonald's, and there, ahead of me on the escalator. I see a Muslim guy wearing a fez, and I'm like, well, I guess I've got to go and do this now, right? So... Off you, off you go, and like, and you understand, like, this is like, this is not an exciting thing, this is quite a scary thing, I, we tried this before, this one time I went up to an old lady that I felt God had given me grace to speak to, she tried to beat me with a handbag, and she chased me away, right, so I was expecting this to not go well, I go up to this guy, and I, look, I was like, hey, look, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, I know this might be really weird, um, but I, I'm a Christian from a local church, and we were praying, and, and I feel like God has asked me to come and to speak to you about Jesus, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the bag to come out. He turns to me, he's like, I cannot believe it. He says, you won't believe. For the last two days, I've been here and I've been hiding in the bathrooms of Cavendish Square waiting for someone to come in, humming or singing a Christian song so that I could ask them about Jesus. I was like, what? God, are you kidding? Is that like a real thing? I was so blown away. I had not expected God to be at work in the background of his story anyway and it was a blessing for me to be able to be a part of this guy's story see Philip had no idea when the angel sent himself how God was already at work in the background of the Ethiopian's life this guy had undertaken a 3,000 kilometer journey one way in order just to worship God and yet do you know what's interesting it's not at the temple that he meets God it's not at the place of worship where he's supposed to meet God that he finds Jesus, but it's on the way home. And I wonder, I wonder if there's some of you who are here today and God's at work in the background of your life and you're really wanting to know God and to find God and you've been to the temple, you've been to church over and over again and, but you feel like you haven't met God. We can be real good at doing churchy stuff in the church but we are at church because we believe that God is real and that Jesus is alive and that he didn't stay dead and that he lives now and that he is the way into eternal life, the way into the kingdom. And so perhaps there's some of you who, is here, who are here today and like the Ethiopian, you really genuinely desire to meet God and, and that hasn't happened yet for you. And I don't want to move past this moment without giving you an opportunity to respond an opportunity to meet with Jesus where we trust that God really does want to meet with you because I believe that that's what he loves to do. Jesus tells his disciples that he loves to give his kingdom to his children. God deeply desires to meet with us and to meet with you. And so if you're in that space this evening, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And there might be no one, and that's okay. I I don't do this often. But I'd like to ask everyone to just close your eyes just so that we don't make someone the spectacle of all your attention. And if there is someone who is here tonight and you you recognize you really want to meet with God, you want to know this Jesus that you've heard people talk about, that your friends have told you about, that you've been to church and heard about, but you've never really felt like you've known Him. If you want to meet with Jesus tonight and choose to, to trust in Him and to believe in Him as your God and as your King, I want to give you that opportunity tonight. So if you'd be brave enough, I'd like to invite you just to stick your hand up. If anyone is in that space tonight, why don't you just stick up a hand. We're going to pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Okay, thank you. We're just going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you see your children. Thank you that you love them. Thank you, God, that your deepest desire is to be reconciled to your children, for them to be reconciled to you. And so, Lord, as you see those who have chosen to turn to you tonight, Jesus, we want to pray that you would pour out your grace and your forgiveness for them. And if you're aware just of some of the stuff that you've carried in the past that you know has been wrong, you're welcome to just... Just bring that up into your heart right now. Just hold it there and just say, Jesus, I want to give this to you. I want to ask for your forgiveness for these things. Jesus, I want to pray that you pour out your forgiveness on your children. Pour out your love on them, God. Show them how deeply you cared for them, that you gave up your own life so that they could be reconciled to you and know you as their true God and true Savior, as their Father and as their friend. Lord, I pray, Lord Jesus, won't you come now and pour out your grace and pour out your righteousness on them and fill them, God, with your spirit. Welcome them, God, into your family. Just speak into their spirit. And may, Lord, we pray that there would be a regeneration and a renewal as the spirit of God comes and pours out and touches from the top to the bottom. Thank you, God. In your wonderful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. For those of you who are just brave enough to do that, I want to say bless you, and it's a wonderful thing to welcome you into the kingdom of God. I want to invite you afterwards just to come and speak to someone so that we can journey this with you, that we can celebrate with you, and, and just chat that through. It would be really fantastic to continue to journey with you. This is one of the most wonderful things that you will ever experience in your life. I want to I want to bring this message to a bit of a close by by saying we've been speaking a bit about the gospel and the nature of the gospel, and that's a wonderful thing because it continues to be the grace of God poured out for all of us day in and day out. We, we love the gospel. But there's two other things I want us to take from the story, whether you've given your life to Jesus tonight or whether you've been following him for a while. Let's just see two other things from the story, and there's, there's a lot more that we could see. But I want us to notice the first one. If you give us the next slide there, Josh. You can do it. I believe in you. There it is. Right. But you notice, this is the beginning of our story. Notice here that at two points in this section of Scripture, Philip receives direct revelation and guidance from God. It starts with, an angel said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road. It ends with, the Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. I think that's a really wonderful and beautiful thing. That's fantastic. I mean, I... I think this is amazing. We see this all over the Scriptures. We see it all over the book of Acts. It's difficult for me to believe and conceive of a Christian faith that does not involve this in some way. Remember Acts 11? The church is worshiping and fasting. I'll just give you four quick examples, right, just to show you that this really does happen. The Acts 11, the, the church is worshiping and they're fasting, and it says this, and the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them. Right. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, he's a Gentile, he's praying, he wants to find God, and he gets a vision, and in this vision, he gets some very specific instructions, it says, I want you to go to a city called Joppa, to a place where Simon the Tanner lives, and look for a guy called Simon Peter, and ask him to come to you, those are very particular instructions, and so he sends men, they go off to Joppa, and because the Lord knows that Peter doesn't respond to random people knocking on his door, because we all know how we feel about the doorbell ringing, someone wanting some of our time. So the Lord gives Peter a vision, and in this vision, that God shows Peter something that's going to help him understand that when these people arrive at his door, he needs to go with them. What about Paul in Acts chapter 16, right, where we read that the Spirit of Jesus prevented him from going into this place. So he went to bed that night, and while he was in bed, he had a dream, and in that dream, he sees a guy from Macedonia, and the guy from Macedonia is waving and saying, please come and help us, and he wakes up and it says this, and he concluded that God had called them to go to Macedonia. Those are just some quick examples in the book of Acts. I mean, this continues to run through Scripture. Let's go to the Old Testament. David is one of my favorites. Do you know how often if you read through the life of David, you see this interaction between David and God, where David is being pursued or chased by an enemy or is pursuing or chasing an enemy, and he says, Lord, should I go up and attack the camp? And God says to David, yes, David, go up and attack him. So he goes, Lord, should I go up and attack the camp? God says to David, listen, Dave, not this time. What I want you to do this time, actually take your men, split them in half. Half of you go around the back, half of you go up the front, and then at this particular hour of the day, you all bang on shields together. When you do that, they're all going to flee, and I'm going to give them into your hands. It's a very particular battle plan that David didn't just suck out of his son. It's all through the Scripture. Guys, there's a balance that we need to have in this thing. Right? And, and I'm not going to go into that right now, but let's not get stuck in a place where we only do things because we're waiting for a direct revelation from God before we act. God still speaks to us through the Scriptures. And those are licensed enough for us to act on everything that the Scripture says. You don't need a direct revelation to do what Scripture says. But at the same time, Scripture doesn't tell us everything we need for life and godliness. There are things that God calls us to do in moments where we need the leading and the direction of the spirits. You remember a story that Megan came and shared a couple of weeks ago about a time where God told her to go to a particular bookshop and buy a particular book and then go to a particular coffee shop and give it to the guy. That's not in the Scripture. You can't do that unless you get the revelation of the Spirit. We need both. All right. Two thoughts as as I kind of bring that idea to a close, just to ponder on as you go. It says, An angel of the Lord said to Philip. I wonder how he knew it was an angel. I don't know if you've ever thought that before, because there are different ways in which angels appear in the scriptures. When the angels appear to the shepherds, there's an angelic choir, and everyone's kind of suspended in the sky, and they're singing a wonderful chorus, and they appear out of nowhere. I know some people who are wonderful singers, but none of them can levitate as a group. That's kind of obvious God is doing something. But Abraham, the father of our faith, meets two men, And invites them for a meal and spends some time with them. And it's only after they leave that he realizes that he spent time with the messenger of the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews says, Be careful to show hospitality to everyone because some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. How did Philip know he was speaking to an angel? I don't really know. But I think something in his heart, in his spirit, began to feel the significance of the moment. Somehow he knew. How do you think the Spirit told Philip? Well, that we read in verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go to that chariot. Do you think he got an audible voice from heaven? I mean, that's happened. It happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. It happened to Jesus at his baptism. Daniel got some writing on a wall or a dream. How do you think the Spirit told Philip? It happens in many different ways in the Scripture. It's something to think about. Last thing that I'm going to say about this passage, is we're going to bring it to a close. I want you to notice how Philip responds to the revelation of God. He responds with immediate obedience. The angel says, go south to the desert road. The next verse says, so he started out, and off he went. I think this is quite remarkable, right? And I'll show you a map to show you why. That's it. Josh, if you give us that. If you have a look at this map, you'll see that Samaria, is, uh, is over there, kind of in the middle, and the arrow points to where the city of Samaria is inside the mountain range. And uh, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza is that dotted line that goes from Jerusalem across to Gaza. Right, you can read, there you go. You've seen the desert road. The angel told him to go down to that intersection. That's an 80K walk. That's like, I, I ran 21Ks yesterday. My legs are very tired. I wonder how many of us we we'll go on a two to three day journey because we believe God said something. There's a guy called Stuart Lee, some of you may know him as a pastor in the UK. He's a man I appreciate, who loves God. He says this, when God asks for obedience, we tend to want a confirmation, an explanation. Then if we get m- both of those, then maybe we'll do what God has asked us. The obedience that God desires is instantaneous and heartfelt and maybe if we're lucky, we'll get an explanation. I don't know how often we do that. Philip, notice in the story, Philip never gets told why he must go south. He just gets told, go south. See, obedience doesn't require an explanation in order for you to do it. This is perhaps the most obvious in a military situation. Imagine a platoon of men. Everyone's kind of hunkered down under enemy fire. And the sergeant says, all right, listen, guys. On my signal, we're going to charge over the top. We're going to assault the enemy position. It's 300 yards northeast of us at the moment. And we're going to do it together. Okay, everyone ready? And then Private Bob's like, but, Sarge, like, why do we have to do that? That, like, seems like a bad play. I think some of us may die. Yeah, Bob, some of you may die. But obedience doesn't require an explanation. You don't get to ask that question. Right? You just your job is to do. The obedience that God desires is instantaneous and heartfelt, and if we're lucky, God will tell us why. But God desires. I mean, I, it makes me wonder: what if what if Philip had weighed up what God had told him for a day? And I'm not sh- saying we shouldn't test what we believe God has said. Right? We need to do that, but we need to also learn to recognize the voice of the Spirit and respond. Because if Philip had waited a day, just one day, to test the word that he'd received, he may have missed the guy. And he would have been past that intersection, and he would never have seen him. Jesus said that my sheep will know my voice. That's our portion. As children of God, we are able to hear and to discern and to distinguish the voice of God. That's how God designed us to operate. And you can't live as a Christian Faithfully to God if you don't know how to hear God's voice. That's part of it's something that we need to practice, something that we need to desire and to ask God to help us in. And as we pursue that, I promise that we'll learn to be better at it. As I close, I want you to notice two things. Philip responded in obedience in this particular story twice. He went to Samaria and he did what Jesus had told his disciples to do, to as he go make disciples of all nations and share the gospel with the people that he reached, and demonstrate the kingdom. And for the first time in the history of the Christian church, Gentiles come to faith. People that aren't Jewish come to believe in Jesus. And then he listens to God again, and he goes south, and he meets the Ethiopian. And for the first time, a man that's going into Africa, this is the first record we have of someone going into Africa with the gospel. And potentially as a result of Philip's obedience, obviously we don't know what happened after that, but two demographics of people that never had the gospel before now have the gospel because he chose to obey what God had given him to do. So as we close our Engage series, I want to encourage you to look for the voice of God. Expect God to speak. Be asking God for opportunities to engage and be bold in your obedience. And let's see what God does. We're going to pray together and to ask James and the team to come up on stage and lead us into a time of worship afterwards. Let's pray as they do that. Lord, we want to say tonight, we want to say thank you, God, for the good news about Jesus. Thank you that that really is good news for us, God, that you came and you took our sins on yourself and you made us righteous where we could not ever deserve that for ourselves. And you opened up the way for us to come to know you again and to be in relationship with you. And you then came and filled us with your spirit so that we could live the kind of lives that you desired for us. Thank you, God. Thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who are willing to believe. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we pray, God, that you would be at work in our lives, that you would use us, God, to be a part of the gospel going out from this place and into Cape Town and into Bergfleet and into South Africa, into all the places that you send us and give us influence, God. Lord Jesus, be at work through this church. May the kingdom of God advance because of the willingness and the obedience of your children in this church. Teach us, God, to hear your voice, to know when you are speaking, and to be bold in our obedience for your sake and for your kingdom. We ask this in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we rejoice and worship our King.